0: Rat McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So I've had several Navy SEALs on the podcast because SEALs are one of the world's last bastions of unabashed manliness. They have a, a lot of, to teach modern men. And my previous SEAL guests have talked about how the lessons they learned for being a special operator can apply to gaining greater resilience, navigating the business world, and even parenting. In these interviews, we talked a little bit about their SEAL training, but in today's episode, we really get into the nitty gritty of the training and the specifics of what it takes to make a Navy SEAL. My guest today is Rorick Denver. He's a Navy SEAL commander in the author of two books, Damn Few, Making the Modern Seal Warrior, and Worth Dying for, Navy SEAL's Call to Action. Today on the show, Rorick and I discuss the intense training that goes to becoming a SEAL, as well as what lessons civilians can take from the SEALs on leadership, sacrifice, and duty. If you're a young guy and you've been thinking about becoming a SEAL, a uh, lot of great insights here. If you're not interested in becoming a SEAL, it, it's just fascinating what goes on to becoming a SEAL, and also we get into some nice life lessons as well. After you're done listening to the show, you can check out the show notes at aom.is Denver for links to read resources so you can delve deeper into this topic. Rorick Denver, welcome to the show.
1: Uh, thanks for having me.
0: Well, glad to have you on the book on the show today. We're going to talk about your book, uh, Damn Few, The Making of the Modern Navy SEAL. Uh, you're a Navy SEAL yourself. Um, before we talk about your book, let's talk about a bit about your career. What was your career as a SEAL like? You know, why did you become one? And what did you do while you were a SEAL?
1: You know, when I was in my senior year of college, I was trying to figure out what I want to do, you know, with my life. And a bunch of my buddies were going to go into the, you know, go into finance and go into the workforce and kind of go, uh, you know, seek their fortunes, which I have no problem with whatsoever. I I just like getting adventures. I like playing rough and and competing. And it felt like there was something more to do. And I was actually reading Winston Churchill's My Early Life, an autobiography he wrote uh, much later in his life, but it kind of captures the first 30 years of his adventure and it was, it just was nothing but adventure, you know, service to country and military academies and the Boer Wars in Africa where he's a prisoner of war and escaped and um, yeah, he just has a tremendous, as, as we all know, a tremendous way with words and, and leadership and there was just something about that book that struck me like a lightning bolt. So I knew I wanted to serve and then once I knew I wanted to be an officer in the in the military, I, I kind of researched what programs uh, would be the right fit, and I heard there's this uh, group of naval commandos down in Southern California where about 80 percent of the people didn't make it through, and that sounded like the right odds to me. So, uh, so the SEAL teams were just, um, you know, felt like the right place to kind of pursue my leadership path and to really push uh, the warrior, you know, in me to the to the furthest extreme, and that proved true. Uh, I came in pre 9 11 and had a couple years and deployments before. Uh, those events unfolded and then you know decade and a half of chasing bad guys so pretty much the entire uh, the entire time we've been at war I've been in a great position to go uh, get in that fight and participate in those engagements and I feel very lucky uh, that that was the case and and that I got a chance to learn those things I learned from that time uh, on the battlefield and then I finished my career on the active side of my my SEAL time uh, running training back in Coronado so running the basic course through Hell Week and then all the advanced courses uh, to kind of round up my active time. So I've had a pretty complete uh, block of time in the Navy and it's, uh, it's just been a gift.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that about Winston Churchill that he actually served in the military.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I mean, he had tremendous military service, both as uh, a young cavalry officer and then as a actually as a war correspondent, a writer. He spent, you know, more time in harm's way. But, uh, you know, fascinating run uh, all over uh, the East and Asia and into Africa uh, with tremendous, uh, you know, building blocks. They learned there to later lead that island through uh, its most tumultuous times, all our most tumultuous time, maybe, although we might be eclipsing it now. Right.
0: Um, So what do you do now? Now, um.
1: So uh, I'm still a commander of the reserves, which keeps me connected to the SEAL teams. I still get my reserve time in to kind of build towards retirement. And I, I want uh, um, I've got kiddos. I want them to see me in uniform. And that service is very important and, and something that our family does. Uh, I do a lot of speaking to kind of corporate America on, on leadership and high performance teams. Uh, You know, I wrote the book that we'll talk about today a little bit, Damn Few, and then my newest book that just came out, Worth Dying For. Uh, So I'll continue in the writing world, which I enjoy. And then just this spring, I was uh, one of the leaders and kind of on-air participants of this show on Fox called uh, American Grit. Which was a bunch of civilians coming in to kind of um, test themselves against military challenges and compete with uh, uh, with peers to see who could kind of make it to the end and win a prize. John Cena was the host and had a lot of fun, and uh, that was a, a great thing to be a part of.
0: It's great. So uh, let's talk about your book, Damn Few, because um, it gets into detail about what goes into creating or developing a SEAL. And sure. there is like definitely there's like this mythos around it. Right everyone's probably seen shows about the making of seals and buds and everything but let's let's start from the very beginning how do you even apply to try out for the seals like what's the process of even getting started and getting accepted into buds
1: Yeah, there's two there's basically two tracks that you're going to experience, you know, in the entire military. But then for SEAL training, you're either going to go in as an enlisted man, you're going to enlist in the Navy and go to boot camp to become a sailor. And then you're going to go to SEAL training or BUDS. As an officer, you're going to either graduate from the Naval Academy, an ROTC program at a college or like I did do a regular experience through college, get your degree and then apply to officer candidate school, hopefully to then get selected to go SEALs. There's a very disciplined path now. It used to be a little bit tougher. tougher in the sense that there wasn't as programmatic a system to get you into the SEAL pipeline. You usually had to be in the Navy for a while, kind of apply, get your commanding officer's recommendation, your master chief's recommendation to go to SEAL training. Now you could walk in, a young lion could, you know, graduate from high school, walk into a Navy recruiter's office, say, I wanna be a SEAL, and they could drop all the paperwork to then compete for that spot. So there's a physical test, push ups, -ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, a run, a swim to just find, uh, you know, make sure you've got the basic, uh, physical capacity to do the training, and then there's some academic tests and some uh, you know some personality and kind of psychological tests that we we ask of a young young lion to see if they're right uh, for our brotherhood, and then uh, and then you're on your way. Okay,
0: and then so once you're accepted, you go through buds, and um, what does bud stand for again?
1: Yeah, buds is basic underwater demolition slash seal training.
0: Okay, and uh, how long is that training, and what makes it unique from other special forces training?
1: The best way to describe BUDS now, I mean, BUDS in its kind of, you know, insular self is about six months, but then we've kind of bulked it all now into one big training program. There's different names to keep it easy for, you know, the listener. About the day from when you start training, you know, in the Navy until the day you're going to, you know, should you see the finish line and become a SEAL, it's about a year. It's about 52 weeks to kind of see it all the way through. BUDS is kind of the first crucible that you've got to face. Uh, The early parts of BUDS, you know, uh, encompassing Hell Week and those things that make most of the young lines that don't make it. Uh, go home. Um, I think the unique parts of the of the seal training program actually are many. Um, probably none so challenging as, and this surprises people because the training program is in San Diego, but dealing with the cold. Uh, that Pacific current runs through San Diego, and so the water temp there hangs in the in the fifties to mid fifties, sometimes lower than that, very rarely warmer than that. And it's very easy for us to get you wet, cold, and miserable out in that type of water temp, and get you jackhammer shivering and and just falling apart, and see if you've got quit. And that that's really what the program is designed to do. It's to offer up a lot of opportunities for people to see. Um, how tough it's going to be, what we require of a young lion if they join the brotherhood and and what we'll expect of them. And what we expect on on an elemental level is, is that you will never give up. And so we offer up a whole lot of opportunity for you to quit. Most people do. For those that don't, they have some quality within them that won't allow them to throw in the towel when things get tough. And that's a piece of clay we can mold into a very, very special operator on the battlefield. If we know for a fact you're never going to throw in the towel, you're never going to give up on a teammate or the job, uh, the rest we can teach you.
0: Yeah, and one of the interesting aspects of it that, that was kind of funny in a sadistic sort of way was how you and the instructors would often make things like unfair Uh for the guys going through buds and they would kind of gripe about it, but there was a reason to your madness. And so can you give any examples of how you guys made things unfair for the guys and why you did that?
1: Yeah, it, it's very, very pointed. And, and and we don't do anything by happens chance. And it, frankly, not only in the SEALs, in military training, there's a lot of things that, that people will see from the outside or even experience. They don't understand why we're doing it. And there is a why to everything we do, from folding your underwear a certain way to cutting your hair and, and wearing uniforms. All that stuff is building blocks to prepare you for the ultimate possibility of going into combat and doing that well. One of the things we do at SEAL training that I, I kind of coined a frame, phrase called random. Acts of instructor violence. And the simplest way to, to do this, what I mean by that violence is not actual violence on the student, but the, the type of punishment or remediation we give to a class when they're making a mistake, they're gonna do push-ups and, and runs to the surf and get wet and sandy and carry their buddy down the beach and their buddy will carry them back. and just 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 kind of destroy them physically is if I were to tell you, let's say you were running a class and I said, hey, I need you to be at the pool deck tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., have your mask and fins, everything ready and be ready to go. If you showed up at 6.04, you can pretty much imagine what your SEAL training day is gonna be. We are gonna destroy you because you failed to meet the standard that we gave you, right? So that's just gonna turn into a horrific day. But sometimes we'll give you that same that same direction. And let's say the instructor staff shows up early. Maybe it's 5.50. We're 10 minutes early, but you guys were 15 minutes early. You're in perfect ranks. You did everything we asked you to do. We can even see a little gleam in your eye or a smile on the, on the student's face to being like, yep, we did it right. We're here. This is great. And we'll beat you worse than the day you did it wrong. And there'll be a bunch of guys that will quit because they'll be like, this is BS, this is unfair, I'm out of here. And that is the entire point. And the reason I say it's random acts of instructor violence is on the battlefield, the acts of violence are going to be actually violent and they will be random. And, And the lesson there is really teaching cultural resilience, that you can do everything right, you can do everything perfectly, and it can go catastrophically wrong. And, and very few people are designed to metabolize that. You know, most people, things go wrong and it breaks them down. In our world, we can't have that happen. So I've had a bunch of SEAL teammates killed on heli- in helicopter crashes. They didn't do anything wrong. Best pilots on Earth, best operators on Earth going to a fight that, that we know they can go win. They got shot out of the sky or the helicopter had a mechanical failure and crashed, killing everybody on that bird. They didn't do anything wrong. If we, did, if we had a cultural... Um, you know, ethos where, Oh, that went wrong. So now I'm going to quit. We, we, we wouldn't be able to do our job. So the, the, the lesson there is one, some people are going to quit because they think it's unfair. We want to find the young man that when it's unfair and things go wrong is still going to push ahead and, and win the day.
0: I'm curious uh, if you've applied random acts of instructor violence to your kids in some sort of way to kind of teach them that same sort of resilience
1: yeah i mean i think dipping the toe in the water it is important and, and probably not at the same level obviously of intensity but yeah i think my bride and i talk and think about that a lot i mean we make our kids struggle with things you know you you see a kid right now on a playground uh let's say you know anywhere from eight years old and under i mean any playground usa and you see a kid trying to zip up their jacket and they can't get the zipper to work you will see like seven parents Swoop in, descend on them to help them zip their their jacket, and it is an absolute tragedy because they need to learn to struggle. They need to learn to fix things and solve things on their own. That's what's going to create their ability to be resilient and and, and function in the world. I think we're 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 making things so easy for everybody, and just culturally, our our society has 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 you know all but eliminated pain from our lives and suffering. And to be honest, I think it's a tremendous mistake. I I really do. I think pain is where the growth comes. Suffering is where you find how tough you are, and then you're inoculated to future suffering. I mean, I think that's that's one of the things that SEALs have is is, is I, I can teach anyone to shoot effectively, accurately, jump out of planes, do all the things we ask SEALs to do. What makes SEALs special and unique is just this intense desire to perform, to see the job through and to never give up. And that, that that's potent beyond belief. And so so the answer is yes, not, not the same level of uh, SEAL training yet, but uh, uh, the kids aren't going to have it easy and that's why they'll be ready for life.
0: That's great. Uh, so BUDS ends with what's called Hell Week. What goes on in Hell Week that makes it so hellish?
1: Yeah, and actually, bud starts with Hell Week, so it's very, Oh, is that
0: right? I didn't. I thought it ended. Very, okay.
1: No, it's very early in the training program. So, uh, you know, that six-month cycle of, of, of buds itself, uh, it's in the first phase. So, we, we want to find out very early who's going to quit and who's not. Hell Week has become our mythic week of training, and I think every special operations force and most most military units, even your kind of regular units, have some type of crucible that's a line in the sand to kind of test. Uh, your ultimate toughness. And, and and Hell Week has become legendary and, and deservedly so. It starts on Sunday night. We get the class out of bed with uh, some bombs and explosions and machine guns going off. It stops sometime on Friday, mid-morning, mid-afternoon. Uh, in that period from Sunday night till Friday afternoon, they get uh, no more than four hours sleep for the entire time and, you know, maybe two two-hour blocks or, of, of of a nap somewhere within that week so you're just wet, sandy, miserable, moving and uh and kind of grinding away uh, for that entire period of time. By the by by you know Thursday people are starting to hallucinate and you know fall apart but uh what what it's based to show you is that your body and spirit and mind can go much farther than you think it can. So when you think you're hitting the wall, you're probably Pretty far from it, and if you can dig deep inside yourself and see it through, then then you've kind of got the stuff we're looking for. And if you you ring the bell, which is kind of the way people exit the program, they go up and ring this famous bell three times, and then they're out of the program. uh, Then that program isn't for you, and we don't we don't make that uh, a negative. It's just that program's not for you at this time, and and it's time to go do other things.
0: So I'm curious for the guys who are listening to this, you know, as you call them young lions, who like I want to do this. Is there anything they can do? to train or prepare for buds, uh, both, you know, physically and mentally, or is it something like you don't know if you're going to pass it until you actually do it?
1: Uh, it's so it's an interesting question, and, and and I hope my answer makes sense. When I ran training, so when I got to the other side of the fence and was running training, I used to give a speech to some of the the young young lines when they showed up, and I'd say, hey, you know, every one of you has come here through some different path, some different a- avenue, and has these experiences bankrolled into their you know psyche and character and who you are. Uh, and, and there's no doubt every one of you asked somebody, you know, how do you get through buds? What's the secret? There is no secret to that training program. The the program is actually nowhere near as um, uh, technical as you might think. I mean, BUDS, I think people think they'd show up at a SEAL compound like that and there'd be, you know, retina scans to get in and laser guns and all this high-tech equipment. BUDS, the basic course is basically sand, concrete, and cold water. That, that's what we use to find out if you're tough. But I used to tell them when they came in, I'm like, look, if you if you didn't bring it here, you ain't going to find it here that there's nothing we're gonna give you to get through it. And there's nothing your buddy next to you is gonna do for you. Your mentors, coaches, pastors, parents, uh, whoever that was have ever have, have either helped you to be the type of person that can that can find something inside himself that's better than a lot of others as it pertains to that training program, and, and so there are no secrets. It, it's uh, it, it's just finding within yourself the ability not to throw in the towel. That that's what it takes.
0: That's what it takes. All right. Another common theme throughout your book was the the diversity that's in the seal community. Because I think there's like this misconception that there's like one type of guy who becomes a seal. Uh, but you actually, in your book, highlight there's like there's seals from all walks of life. Like you yourself, I think you uh, you majored in art. Yep. Right. Uh, yep. And now you're the the seal. So, I mean, what are some of the what are some of the types of people that you worked with or types of men you worked with that sort of broke the mold of what people think is a typical seal?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the gift of being in the military and this is not this is not you know specific to seals i mean the beauty about being in the military is you've got a kid from you know the 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 north side of houston or the south side of chicago or some tough neighborhood and then you got a kid that grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth and, and came from all the advantage you can have and you got a kid that you know broke horses in texas and a logger from oregon and a, and a you know uh, a coal miner from pennsylvania so we all come into this place from these different backgrounds disparate locations and, and kind of experiences and then when you show up in military training, any military training, there's a reason we shave your head and put you in a white t-shirt and some ugly fatigues and the same pair of boots, because we need to get rid of the I, the personality. Now that will come back later. It's not meant to extinguish that, but it's meant to put everybody on the exact same page and realize there's nothing, there's nothing, nothing special or something you're bringing to the table to get through this program. But when we get past that and get you in the teams, then what makes you unique becomes what you bring to that team, but never at the expense of the team. You've got I think one of the words we use in the military that's usually a bad word that I think is a good word is the idea of subjugation, of subjugating yourself to a greater good. I think most people think of that in terms of bondage or, 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 or some negative. We think of it as a good thing, getting rid of the the what you need and think of what the whole team and the we needs. And if you can do that, then you're going to be a great, great team player. Uh, and that that that's what's unique about SEALs. The fact of the matter is we have guys that are shredded, six foot two, look like they were chiseled out of, you know, marble by Michelangelo and probably what you would expect a SEAL to look like, a big, tough, you know, warrior, archetype. But then we have guys that are you know, 5'1 and you know 136 pounds, wiry and just tough as nails. Those are actually the usually the most dangerous guys because nothing can keep them down. And we, you know, we have guys that um you know just really come from a lot of different body types, a lot of different backgrounds. And in the end, that's what I'm saying. The program is from the neck up, it's not from the neck down.
0: Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Gotcha. Um, so what happens after someone passes buds and passes through all the other phases of training? Um, I know they're assigned to a team, but how are they assigned? Do they have any say in that? Or is it sort of like, yep, you're going here
1: for the most part you're going to be directed where you're going you might get a chance at, a choice on do you want to go to the east coast or stay on the west coast you're, you know as a seal as, as a new guy you're either going to be stationed in San Diego or in Virginia Beach Virginia at Little Creek and so you you might get a chance at one of those uh choices either west coast or east coast after that it's going to be the needs of the needs of the navy needs of the team and where, where you're going to be assigned and 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 frankly it's not You know, young guys might think they know where they want to go. It's not important. What's important is that you go there and learn the skill set and distinguish yourself and add to the strength of that organization as opposed to going where you want to go. Later in your career, you've got a little bit more of an ability to pick, you know, where you want to be, where you want to have your family. But uh, for the most part, you're going to get assigned to a team, you're going to go learn. Um, you know, the advanced level, what we're looking to do, the, you know, the high tech gear, the advanced tactics and the things that we're going to bring back from the battlefield. So you're effective when you go and, you know, you learn that skill set, and we find out if you can do the job.
0: Okay. Well, speaking of family, um, this is, you had a, ch- a chapter about this. I, don't, I think it's something that people don't think about when they're like, Hey, I want to be a seal. They don't, they're probably thinking that when they're single, don't have anybody, you know, any dependence upon them. What's family life like as a Navy SEAL?
1: You know, early in the career, it's very challenging. I mean, when you first start, you know, the whole training program demands – basically full time, very little time off. And then when you show up at your first team, you're going into multiple rounds of advanced training and then and then you're gonna deploy and go chase the nation's enemies right now. So uh, very, very taxing on families. Uh, you have to have an extremely uh, strong gal that's gonna make it through that experience. And, and, uh, and that's usually what we find. We find, uh, you know, they become some of the best parts of the story. I mean, the toughest person in our household uh, sure as can be isn't the seal it's my bride and 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 how she's run our family and and dealt with the stress and the intensity of me being in harm's way and and doing the job overseas but it's taxing you know i think uh for a lot of years our divorce rate was extremely high i think just because of the time away from home and the guys being out in a wildlife while somebody was back home kind of holding down the fort i think that's actually improved i think our guys are doing better um you know with that life and i think the the entirety of special operations forces not just seals rangers green berets all the the spec ops Leadership has figured out that there is such a toll. We need to do better about balancing that life. It doesn't take away the extreme time commitments, but they try and do better that when they're home, we let the guys be home and get that time in when when we can.
0: Did you uh, marry your wife before or after you became a SEAL?
1: I finished training, and uh, it wasn't until I wrote uh, you know, Damn Few that I realized how complete her experience was. I thought I met her a little bit later in my SEAL life, but... She's been with me through the entire time. So I did one one deployment before uh, we got married, and then she's been with me for multiple deployments since, and you know all of post 9 and and that whole experience. So I, I for me it was it was probably a blessing going through training single because I could just had utter focus on that and wasn't uh, wasn't split. But there are guys that went through training that were married that I think it actually really was a deterrent and hurt them, and then ones that it really helped them. So it can, it can work. It kind of just depends on the relationship.
0: Yeah. Another interesting thing you talked about in the book towards the end, and this is sort of, um, you had direct experience with this, was this, I didn't know about this, but um, there was sort of this tension that existed in the SEAL community right after 9-11 because uh, there was this mandate from up, you know, from the higher brass and from uh, the civilian executives saying they wanted more special operators and they wanted more SEALs. Um, Why did that call for more SEALs cause tension within the SEAL community?
1: Well, it was just kind of that classic, you know, if 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 this much is good, more has to be better. Which I think a lot of people, you know, it sounds like it briefs well, it doesn't necessarily work in execution. So I think the reason our teams are so effective is they are small and nimble and creative and streamlined, and and, and only so many people can get through the course. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld at that time, as Secretary of Defense. Um, you know, very much want to grow all of the special operations forces, and that's because of their tremendous capacity and successes on the battlefield. So there's, there's, it's totally natural and, in my mind, appropriate that that would be the right decision. What happened in, in practice, unfortunately, was is everybody started generating more people, but they did it by compromising their standards, and that, that, that's just true. People will, will, will sling lead about that and say that's not the case. I saw it, and I know the people that ran those training programs. And the only way to get more people through most of these pipelines is to make it easier and we were very resistant and 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 kind of um, uh, belligerent to that so most of the, the the counterparts did increase their graduation numbers we didn't senior leadership said you got to make it happen so we've designed a lot of systems within the program to try and just get a better candidate to the front door instead of trying to get you know change any of the standards or, or the intensity of the program try and get a better young man to the to the entry to hopefully get more out the back end and I think that's been achieved a little bit but not in dramatic numbers but when I was running the training this was a absolute five round MMA title fight that the instructors and those from the battlefield were definitely fighting senior leadership to try and guard the brotherhood to get the right people through.
0: So what sort of changes did they make to make sure they get the the best coming to them, more of the best coming towards them?
1: Uh th- you know there's an entire recruiting directorate that didn't exist, you know, certainly when I was rec- when I was coming in, nobody was recruited back then. And now now they're just doing better, I think. For lack of a better term, they're doing a better job marketing it. They're doing a better job explaining that path to young um, aspiring SEALs or aspiring folks that want to serve. Um, I, I have pretty personal feelings about how you could do it better, but you know that's that's for senior leadership, and that will always be the tension between the military or corporate America or whatever it is. Um, but you know, I, I think if the standards remain the same. Um, I have no problem with them working harder to get a better product into that program. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is, it is it is so challenging and such a difficult course of instruction. There are just only so many guys that are going to get through. It. it is just a fact. Like we've done it for years, and you know, over some sixty odd period, the the the, the attrition rate, seventy five to eighty percent, has held pretty solid.
0: Well, uh, this is interesting about you. Besides being a real Navy SEAL, you played a Navy SEAL on the big screen. Um, and I'm sure some of our listeners have seen the movie um, *Active Valor*. How did that? How did that happen? Did, did when you and when you became a SEAL, did you ever think I'm gonna one day be a movie star because I'm going through Hell Week?
1: Yeah, of course not. You know, in, in no way was that something I sought out. You know, the that was directed by the Navy. There's there's been a lot of uh, a lot of I think tension about this since. But you know, I, I you know. Tell you like truthfully, that was approved by the United States Navy up through senior leadership in Washington and Special Operations Command to to have active duty SEALs, active duty pilots and boat drivers. Anyone that was in active valor that's in a uniform is on is in their actual uniform doing their actual job. And we were placed on orders to go make that movie. So I have a set of Navy orders, documented a number that said, you, you know, you are assigned in the next three months to go make this motion picture for, um, you know, for the Navy. I think the the, the impetus for for that was to kind of tell our story authentically and accurately and and maybe increase some of the young folks coming into our program. And it it, it did result in that. I, I think not just that, I think, you know, the, the, the Captain Phillips rescue, the Bin Laden raid and some of the high profile missions our community has succeeded in has also created a tremendous amount of interest in, in young folks wanting to become part of that very elite brotherhood amongst a lot of others. Uh, but, no, I, I would have never predicted it. Um, it was a, a good experience. I mean, positive in that. I think the film company did a great job of letting us tell the story um, authentically and not, you know, fed a script that didn't make sense. If it, we, we told them, if it doesn't happen on the battlefield, if we don't say it, we're not going to do it. And they, they honored that commitment. So, uh, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen with that movie. I think a bunch of people thought it'd go straight to DVD and be at the bottom of the basket at Walmart. And next thing you know, it's the number one movie in America. America. So it was uh, it was a pretty wild adventure.
0: That's fun. So yeah. you got a new book out, worth dying for. Can You tell us a bit about what that book's about and why you wrote it.
1: Yeah this this one uh, I, I really am excited about and and, and was um, was a special experience. Worth you know worth dying for is kind of a reflection of 15 years of sustained combat chasing our nation's enemies and where I think we are, um, kind of as a country, you know, where we are in terms of what we believe in as service and who we should be as citizens. What I think our leadership be thinking about our position in the world, which needless to say has become a high stress environment right now, based on the choices we've managed to offer up for the, the senior position. Um, it talks a lot about, you know, um, the idea of everyone serving in some capacity. Uh, and then a lot of chapters that just kind of came out of the blue. I mean, I write an entire chapter uh, about killing and the, the reverence, the intensity of that, uh, and what that's like to experience on the battlefield and post your time in the military. Uh, and so worth dying for is just a thinking warrior's view on where we are, where I think we should be going, and, and may, maybe how better uh, to be, you know, citizens both here at home and abroad.
0: Well, let's talk about you know that that the chapter about killing. I know that's like a question. I'm sure a lot you get. Do you get asked that a lot? Like, did you kill anyone, or do people like not like to talk about it?
1: Um, I think it's a mixed bag. I think yeah, I get asked it a fair amount. I, I think you know maybe early on in engagements, people didn't know what SEALs and special operators and how much those in the fight were in the actual fight. I think now people you have a pretty good sense if there's a seal with multiple combat deployments on the battlefield there's a good chance he was aiming his gun at a bad guy so uh so maybe it's 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 um lessened you know in the past eight years or something just thinking well probably of course he has although you'd be surprised uh how much some certain teams have done uh, a lot of the work and how some haven't across all the all the forces but uh you know the chapter i I wrote about that i, I think is a very um you know personal and, and unique look at the at the concept of killing I talk a lot about how we can train someone how to shoot effectively and how to uh, you know level your sights on on an enemy combatant and how to do the mechanical part of the job and we can train I can train an orangutan to do that effectively but then that it takes a toll that there's gonna be uh, an emotional connection to that probably in reflection that you're gonna have to deal with and rectify and, and kind of um, you know balance in your life and, and I I just talk about i think the reverence for that moment i'm also a hunter i've become you know big game hunter and i like being out of doors particularly post-military it's actually a great way to transition from our last life into you know carrying a gun being in the field doing terrain studies learning what your quarry is and then go hunting it And then you get to eat you know the best food on earth if you actually uh if you actually achieve your goal um but i talk about how uh, you know, the hunters that I care about and I respect that when they do take an animal, it, it's a, it's a reverent moment there. There's, there's unfortunately some hunting TV shows that will show people high fiving and and hooting and hollering and taking the big grip and grin photograph with the elk or the deer that they killed. And th- those aren't the hunters I spend time with. The guys that I spend time with are very, very thankful, um, of the hunt, of the time, of that animal giving its life for their family, and then the food that they're going to put on the table, and the experience of being in wild places, and that that's frankly a birthright in this country, and something we've enjoyed uh, for many many years, and, and, and so I just talk a lot about the reverence for that moment, and that that it's not something that should just be blown off and be you know Hollywoodized, and and uh, you know I think anybody that reads that chapter will enjoy
0: it. So going back to this idea of of service. Um, you know, for folks who are in the military, like they're they're serving their country, right? And like, particularly if you're on combat, you're in the front line of defending, and you have this, you've developed this ethos of service. I'm curious, any insights for civilians on how they can develop that ethos of service with them?
1: A hundred percent. So so one of my chapters is about universal service and worth dying for. It's it's probably, in many ways, it's probably my most important or favorite chapter. And and what I, what I call for in this chapter is the idea of, I, I think we should just pass this, like Congress should talk about this and make it something that's a requirement. I don't think that will ever happen based on the way our country's going. And some people probably argue it's unconstitutional, but we're allowed to manipulate that document. That's the strength of it. But I, I call for universal service. Service. I think every young person, either when you graduate high school, if you're going to college, you can defer it for for one for the four years and then you have to do it when you graduate college needs to give this country a year of service. I don't go into a real um, focus, you know, specific to military it could be military and you could do a year of military service without having to be then tied into four years of advanced service. If you wanted to extend, you could, but just some type of service to the country. So that could be military. It could be for a, a health organization, prefer an educational program. But I, I think it should be humble. It should be something where you leave your hometown. You got to go live on a subsistence wave for, wage for a year. It's not something you're going to go do uh, to get rich, but it's going to be to go help uh, the country. And, and, and there's just unlimited places that this could be affected. And I think while it would be expensive, we spend money on insane programs that don't uh, you know, reap much reward. And I think this would be a game changer. I think if, if people thought about others before themselves for a block of time in their lives, we would just be phenomenally better for it. And my recommendation would be that kids from different backgrounds show up in different places, so they have to work together. So exactly like we do in the military, you come from all these diverse backgrounds, the same thing would be offered in this. We would we would systematically send people from you know high end community in, in in Connecticut to work with a, a, a tough kid from you know some other part you know South Central, and that those two would then have a shared experience and realize how much we all um, think very much the same about what we're looking for in this world.
0: Right. So I mean, it helps develop that national unity.
1: One hundred percent. It would be a game changer. There's just no doubt in my mind this would have a deep positive impact on our country. I I fear that we would never pass something like this or even think of doing it. But boy, I think it would be potent.
0: Right. I mean, other countries, I guess in Israel, they have mandatory uh, military service. Oh, there's,
1: there's compulsory military service in a lot of countries, Scandinavian countries, and and certainly Israel. And, and I think, you know, anyone I've met for those parts of the world, and I've met a lot of them thought of that service, one, as a national debt and something that they believed in doing, and two, took tremendous value out of it. I mean, I, you know, the, the, the other thing I write about and worth dying for is just how small, uh, the number of people are that are serving compared to the, the the greater society. I mean, it's less than 1% of the United States is serving in uniform, carrying that tremendous burden and responsibility to fight our nation's enemies and to, to sacrifice themselves to that cause uh, that we just don't own it the way we did um, you know, in years past, I mean, you know, even our government—the the, the um, reflection of service has just dropped off precipitously. In the '70s, you know, Congress, both the House and the Senate, were, were you know, in the high '70s, 78 percent former military. And now it's down to like 18%. So now you have all the decision makers that are going to put people in harm's way that have almost no service and connection to the United States military. And they're sure not sending their kids. Some of them are. Of course, somebody's going to flame off when they hear this and say, well, my, you know, I'm a senator and my son serves. It is a very, very small number of people. And even our presidents had a tremendous history of military service in the background. And now that's disappearing. So I think when you talk about, you know, what do I want from my government, to be honest, I don't want that much, but I definitely want them to be focused on, on the military and security and our international position abroad. And, and to have a, to have a commander in chief as military service, I th- sure think has a lot to recommend.
0: it. Yeah. I'm curious how things will change in the next 10 years. as You have veterans of the Afghanistan and I- Iraq wars get more involved. I've been seeing it. It's like, they're slowly, gonna- slowly starting to run for uh, political office.
1: No doubt. You're dead on. And you're going to see a lot more of it. And I think a lot of us feel the weight of that re- responsibility that our lessons, um, you know, talk about somebody that has a worldly experience and could talk about foreign policy. I and mean, the fact of the matter is, you, you know, we hear this premium on foreign policy and, and what they would know. Well, I could take a I could take a 21 year old Marine and have them advise this current stable of leadership. And they know more about foreign policy than any anyone working in D.C. It's, it's kind of crazy.
0: Well, Rourke, this has been a great conversation. Where can people find out more about your work and your books?
1: Yeah, so so you know, Damn Few is is still on shelves in, in bookstores everywhere, and you can certainly get it on Amazon. Worth dying for, which just came out this spring. Uh, it's called Worth Dying For: A Nation's uh, A Seal's Call to a Nation. Uh, that that's the same. Amazon, Barnes Noble, any place books are sold, you can find that book. Um, I do a lot of speaking on on leadership and high performance teams, and and you can kind of find me in the social media world—Twitter, uh, you know, Instagram, Facebook, all that good stuff—and and, um, and and I'm I'm here to serve. So I hope this next life. Uh, still connects to making this country a better place, our, our our citizens stronger and more focused on on what we enjoy in the world. I, I, I am very wary of where we are with what we're voting and and the way we're treating one another. So I hope we can uh, I hope we can get it right. And if I can help, I'm going to do it.
0: Awesome, Rourke Denver. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, brother my guest today is rorick denver he's the author of two books damn few as well as worth dying for they're available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere after the show check out the show notes at aom.is slash denver for links to resources as well as uh, a transcript on the show so you can delve deeper into this topic Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, I appreciate it if you give us a review. It really helps us out a lot. Thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.